Now, there's data from Scotland in which they looked at the follow-up post-diagnosis of melanoma, and they looked at the melanoma experts, and then they took a bunch of primary care providers, and they provided them with a short training on melanoma detection. There was no difference in the long-term patient survival and detection, with just a little bit extra training for the primary care providers. That's Dr. Rayed Al-Hussein joining us once again. As you recall, he's a clinician investigator and assistant professor in the Division of Dermatology at the University of Toronto. He's also a scientist, an associate scientist at the Odette Cancer Research Program, and he's a staff dermatologist at the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and at Women's College Hospital, all in Toronto. He's our guest once again in this episode of JCMS Author Interviews. I'm your host, Kurt Barber. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Calgary. Today, we're going to discuss the article that he co-authored that's going to appear in our September-October issue of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. It's titled, Surveillance After a Previous Cutaneous Melanoma Diagnosis. It was a scoping review of melanoma follow-up guidelines. So before we get started, a quick reminder, this article is open access and free uh, on the JCMS website for any that wish to read it. Well, Red, welcome back to our podcast. It's wonderful to have you back with another topic. And thank you again for all the work you and your authors do uh, for JCMS. I really appreciate the, uh, the support. So this article is about surveillance. This is, you know, today I'm at work. I, I'm sure I did a half a dozen surveillances, skin surveillance, skin checks. A lot of it was previous non-melanoma skin cancer. Some of them are previous atypical nevi. Some of their patients had had previous melanomas. And some of them are there because their doctor said they should probably get it based on their family history. So it's a lot of our work. Um, what did you learn from reviewing the literature on surveillance, particularly I know is specific to melanoma? When it comes to the evidence to support it, what, what I would say is probably there isn't a lot of evidence to support the different practices that are happening in terms of surveillance for melanoma. And we looked about at around 20 different guidelines. There was a huge variation in all the aspects about the surveillance. Uh, how long should it be uh, happening for? Uh, how frequent does it need to be? What does it involve? Who should be doing it? Uh, and when that's the case, uh, I think we need to take a step back and understand that probably not a lot of evidence supports what we do, and we need to have a second look about, uh, at what we are doing and revise it in a way that is really appropriate for within the healthcare system and the limited resources that we have, where we provide the care that would have the most impact uh, for our patients. Uh, the example you gave, uh, I think many dermatologists will uh, agree with, it's Many of the cases we see in the clinic are follow-ups and skin surveillance. Uh, and I was looking at cancer care uh, data, and it estimates about 10,000 melanomas uh, diagnosed annually in Canada. And some of the guidelines are recommending indefinite annual skin exam for patients with melanomas. So if you look at, let's say, 10,000 patients per year over 10 years, we're looking at more than we need to find 100,000 appointment slots just for screening for the melanoma patients. And 
In addition to that, think about all the other things that we deal with, uh, the other skin cancers, the psoriasis, the eczema, the autoimmune diseases. Uh, so we need to put that in perspective in terms of, yes, it's an important aspect, but is it, is it really needed? And who are the patients that are more likely to need uh, that type of surveillance? Well, of interest, of interest, it's the it's it's some of my happiest patients. Yeah, because they come in, they reassured. It's it's uh, very much part of what the public wants. The counter argument isn't it what we should be helping patients with? I agree with you. They're they're very happy patients and very appreciative. It's nice in a very busy clinic when you meet a patient like that. On the other hand. When you have a discussion about a patient who's been coming for 10 years, I've seen a previous dermatologist for 10 years, and their previous dermatologist, they either moved from a different city or their previous dermatologist retired, and they come with the expectation that I want to continue to have this annual skin check when nothing really happened over the last 10 years or so. Uh, and one of the first things that they say is, I actually waited six months to have this appointment. And they don't make that link between why is that happening? Uh, so yes, patients love it and like it, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's the most appropriate way of providing healthcare. I think having that discussion with the patients about what else, like those slots once uh, created uh, to be able to help other patients. And for the same patient who had to wait six months, next time there's something is actually concerning, we will be able to see them much faster. I think those are the things that, yes. that the way I put it to them, some of the patients is really it gives you that false uh, uh, belief that because you're under a dermatologist, you'll be seeing them in a year. That might not be the, if you're having a queer melanoma, you don't want to wait for your appointment in a year from now for a dermatologist to let you know about it. Yeah. So, so how I manage that in my practice is I tell people the annual surveillance is Really neither here nor there. If, if you're more comfortable, fine, you know, see if we can book it. But what's really important is the ability to contact me if somebody finds something on you or you find something on you. So it's it's like staying registered with a practice, if you will. They don't People don't disappear. And then, you know, when they phone your office, you say, well, gee, I haven't seen you in 10 years. Um, I'm not going to see you now. Or you're going to wait six months or 12 months. And remember, this isn't Botox. They're not getting in in two days. They're not getting in in three days. They're, this is a general exam. They're getting in in six months, nine months. So I say, I say the importance to my, in my world isn't so much your surveillance. I don't care if you don't keep this appointment. I mean, you know, tell me. It could be every five years. But COVID was a good example. People say, well, I haven't been in for three years. And I said, well, okay, Um we didn't need to see you for three years because you're, you're clear again. Um, but don't ever lose the fact that you can contact me if you find a spot that's that's odd or that you're concerned about. Yeah, and, and this is an opportunity to talk about two important points here. One of the things on which the guidelines, almost all the guidelines agreed on, is the importance of patient education in two aspects. One is sun protection, and the second is about self-skin exam. And there's some data that most of the local recurrences uh, are actually detected by the patients or a family member. Uh, and then they brought that, they schedule an appointment based on that. 
if that works where you can keep a patient as part of your practice uh, indefinitely, that is certainly something that uh, 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 is reasonable to do. I would say other dermatologists in other parts of the country, that might not be ideal for their practice. Um, because sometimes the patients will call and it's really not about, like a patient will, will detect a lot of things on their skin. Some of them are really not that concerning. Um, uh, for example, a lot of inflamed seborrheic keratosis would patients would, would be concerned about. Um, and I tell the patients, if your family doctor write to the dermatologist with their concern, that will carry more value in, in the way that the appointment is triaged. Yeah. Now, with the new technology, I, I get a lot of patients when they call or even when the family doctor refers them is I ask them to send a photo for an initial triage because I might look at it and it's just an actinic keratosis. Uh, or I might look at it and say, on the photo, I cannot really determine. I need to see you. So I will need to schedule something urgent. Yeah. So the problem we've got is so many of our patients or the population of Canada don't have a family doctor. So now they have no access to you. Where they don't know, you know, they don't know that they can send in a photo, but they can't send in a photo unless they put a prime you ahead of time. So they have to be somehow in contact with you. So I think there is an issue we've got that you know isn't going to isn't going to be solved in this this uh, just in their surveillance discussion. But there's lots of people have no access to a dermatologist, not because there isn't dermatologists in the neighborhood, is because dermatologists require family physician referral for the most part, and we're, we don't have family physicians any longer you know, for a huge percentage of the population. And their wait to get in to see their family doctor is often in weeks and months now. So, you know, we, we have an issue. Uh, oh, boy, we do have an issue. Uh, and it's that the problem is we cannot, as dermatologists, fix that aspect of the healthcare system. And we cannot become the patient's family doctors, unfortunately, or the primary care providers. Now, in certain situations, high-risk patients, that might be an an alternative solution where having unlimited access to a dermatologist where it's going to be seeing you on, okay, book a follow-up in a year and then we'll take it from there because you're a high-risk patient. And I do that, for example, with patients with skin lymphomas just because it's a very rare disease and it's going to be very difficult for them. And it, now I say come every two years, book an appointment in two years. Um, but with skin surveillance, the, just the number of patients is, is very high. That makes it very challenging to provide that as an option to most of the patients, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, remember when we first started to recognize familial melanomas, it wasn't so long ago that the, the fact was, the, the, the thinking was that we should take off every atypical mole. We went through this same numbers discussion at that time because the, the numbers are impossible to conceive. And then when we discovered that, you know, 15, 20 percent of the population have atypical moles, it became even more of a discussion. How do we manage this? How do we manage this? And it just settled out to now where, like I'm sure in your practice, and most of us probably take those high risk people and say, look, you've had a melanoma. You've got multiple moles. There may be a genetic link here. We should probably see you every year or certainly at any time you have a, a problem, a, 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 an area of concern. I, I still do. Yeah. That. And it, when it comes to like atypical moles, um, the way I would, I would put it to the patients is I don't use the term pre-cancerous or pre-malignant. Um, 
the way I say, if I had a way of being 100% sure before I take them all out that it's not a cancer, I wouldn't have taken it out. But when I look at it, I'm not 100%, and that's why we're taking it. Uh, but if if we knew it wasn't, we did, there's no reason to remove an atypical motor or a dysplastic nevus. Um, when it comes to the surveillance um, and whether we offer it annually or not, even for patients who've had a melanoma, the studies have shown that the highest risk of recurrence is actually within two or three years. And that's where most of the follow-up will need to be. Anything after that is, I guess, we follow the five-year rule because most cancers are followed for five years. Um, and But the data really says it's the first two or three years in which the highest risk of recurrence, which is about... Um, about 10 to 13 percent, uh, but it's much higher with with high risk melanomas and much lower with the with the low risk melanomas. Now, wasn't there an issue with the Swedes followed a bunch of their patients? Do you see that where they followed thirty six thousand people that had had thin melanomas out for fifteen or twenty years? Uh, I've forgotten where, which journal was published in, but but based on that article, they looked at their guidelines and said, we have such a low mortality rate based on these thin melanomas that, that I th- as I remember, the recommendation was you come in, you have your surgery, you have your sutures out, and that's your follow-up. You, you, we don't book you for a regular follow-up because with these thin lesions, the recurrence rates have been so small that it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and, and the aspects about this is, so, for example, the, the British guidelines uh, for melanoma in situ is, yes, you take it out, follow-up post-surgery, but then there's no need for any further follow-up beyond that. And in terms of following patients and detecting those low-risk melanomas, uh, it's the same argument as prostate cancer. So are we just detecting cancers that could have been there for a very long time without doing much? Uh, and do we really change patient uh, uh, overall survival by by detecting those or not? But from from that aspect, which is, okay, the other aspect is who should be doing those follow-ups. And in a Canadian context, because many of the primary care providers do not receive a, a lot of training in dermatology, by default, the expectation is it's going to be done by a dermatologist. So if there's ever some a recommendation for an annual skin check, by default in Canada, patient will be, in most cases, will be referred to a dermatologist. And the expectation is uh, that annual follow-up should, should be uh, happening with a dermatologist. Now, there's data from Scotland in which they looked at um, the, the follow-up post-diagnosis of melanoma, and they looked at the melanoma experts. And then they took a bunch of primary care providers, and they provided them with a short training on melanoma detection. And there was no difference in the long-term patient survival and detection with just a little bit extra training for the primary care providers. Well, that, well that's what I, AI is going to give us. And that we've talked to a couple of people now in these podcasts and they're looking at in the AI modules that are being developed aren't to, treat, aren't to help us. Just to help primary care doctors look at, you know, have the computer look at multiple pictures and they put a picture in and try and get and try and source out from there. But in any proper triage model, it's the expert who does the triage and everybody else does the follow-up. We've got this backwards. 
we're letting the people out on the street, the nurse practitioners, the GPs, the, those people do the triage and filter it up. And it just, it's, it's not a model that is very successful. It certainly isn't a model that, that is very efficient because it's, it's usually a kind of trauma setting. It's the doctor goes out to the ambulance and makes the decisions. And the, from there, things flow, right? Versus in our model, for non-melanoma skin cancer, melanoma skin cancer, we got it backwards. We ask our family doctors and our nurse practitioners and nurses and hairdressers and whomever to do the triage. And then we end up being the doctors. And there's, there's so few of us in relative numbers that the system just isn't, it doesn't work. But, but the counter argument to that, Kirk, is there isn't enough dermatologists to do the triage, unfortunately. Um, like if we are to screen all the patients with who are concerned about lesions, we're now struggling with the patients who just had a melanoma. Add to that all the patients who have lesions that they're concerned about. I think yeah. I think the approach to this is going to be improving the triage process that is happening through the primary care uh, model, uh, whether it's the nurse practitioners or the primary care providers. Um, to ensure that the referral that we get uh, is tri- can help us. There's information in it that can help us in terms of determining who needs to be seen urgently versus those who can wait. Yeah, so therein is the AI, the reason for artificial intelligence. I'm all for it. Right, I mean, that's, that's clearly a, a big need. If we can train others to be experts, then the triage model starts to work. But at the same time, it's we're training a machine, and there there'll be fail safes. But I know that work's going on, and uh, but it's still five to ten years out, and and I'm not sure that that uh, the people who actually need all this triage are older folks now. The, the, that demographic number is going to fall away here pretty soon. Maybe not in melanoma world, but certainly in the non-melanoma world. Um, but it, it, it's a problem we have, and. And over the coming five to ten years, they're probably going to be, we're going to be dealing with those issues where the over detection by the AI that that would create that anxiety about seeing a dermatologist urgently, sure. and then are you sure about your diagnosis because <laughs> the model told me that I have melanoma? Uh, but once we have a very effective AI model, then that could remove part of that triaging that's happening outside because. Patients can do the triage, the initial triage. Yeah. yeah. I look at it like the ECG machines. True. Yes. Right? So they, they now interpret the ECG, right? And, and so so the idea is that they have the electronics and they think they can do a decent job of it. But if you look at the cardiologists who, like I, in the research world that we do an ECG before, the machine says X. I say, look, if it's abnormal, I don't want to see it. I'm not an expert. We send it off the cardiologist. The cardiologist invariably says normal. You know, the machine has said something bizarre, right? And so, I don't know. We, we've, we've got a long ways to go. Yeah, that, that's, I think that's slightly different. That's like the parameters that the lab puts on a, on a lab result and you get uh, a result. Yeah, yeah where the white blood cell is 11.1, so it's abnormal. So it flags it for someone. Yeah, oh. yeah but you're going to set your, you're going to take a, some machine's going to take a picture of that right. hole. And it's going to look at 100 million other pictures and see what matches up, right? And so it's still going to be a machine. Oh, hopefully a very good machine. Now, did the dermatologist still beat the machine as far as um, dermatoscopic exams? Yeah, it depends on 
when uh, you run that test. I think at this point, probably the machine is at the level of a, a first year dermatology resident or a second year dermatology resident. And I think just with that learning with the models and the, and the billions of pictures that's comparing to, uh, very likely that will, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I think it's uh, inevitable that it will be beat, it will be the dermatologist. Okay, so now that we're not necessary any longer, uh, so what, 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 what kind of? So listen, let's get, let's make this practical for people. Let's let's set up a guideline. Okay, let's set up a guideline. I've had let's uh, do it for me. Caucasian. I had uh, no. I have a melanoma that uh, is thin, not in situ. It's invasive. It's uh, I don't know. Let's use let's don't make it difficult. Let's use one point two. Right. Okay, millimeters, some Breslau thickness. And otherwise, nothing else found. How often do you want to see me? So, and again, depending on which of the 20 guidelines you read, uh, but this is my interpretation uh, where I think it's... Yeah, how you put your... Yeah, word? my world would be in a Canadian context, someone with a low-risk melanoma, I will probably follow them every six months or so for the first two years. And then annually for another year or two. And then I will, if there's no events happening during that time, I will be discharging them uh, uh, from my practice back uh, to their primary care provider. But doctor, you didn't do any tests. I have that argument all the time. That's the thing about <laughs> if you, <laughs> the number of times that a patient will say, when I look at something and say, this is a wisdom spot, which other people are calling age spot. And you can tell that just by looking. And I said, yeah, this is my bread and butter. This is what I'm trained to do. Uh, so from an, for that part of the discussion, uh, I think it's easier to explain to patients where for a low risk melanoma, the recurrence is gonna be uh, locally uh, at the site on the skin. Now there's one caveat, which is, uh, a potential role for ultrasound of the regional lymph nodes. Um, and that would be applicable. Most of the guidelines would recommend it for patients who are candidates for sentinel lymph node and decided not to undergo sentinel lymph node or who had a sentinel lymph node that was positive but did not have the entire lymph node uh, basin removed. Uh, so there is value in actually doing regular ultrasound examination uh, 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 in those patients. So how do you, what do you do for the back? Yeah, that's... Which group do you go to? Well, right? That's a very good question. So with extremities, it's much easier to identify where was the basin going to be. Uh, if you're lucky enough where they actually had a central lymph node and you have the report of where they, uh, uh, which lymph node area you need to be examining. Mm -hmm. But uh, I've been doing ultrasound examination now for other reasons. And it's not, yes, it's, I'll probably need to do ultrasound in more than one area, but it's at the end of the day, it's doable uh, in in a selected number of patients. So what kind of equipment are you, are you using this at point of care? Are you using that in your office? I do use that. Uh, at, so again, I don't do it routinely for melanomas, to be honest with you. Uh, those, like I practice in an academic center with a melanoma clinic. So most of that follow-up is happening there. Uh, but I think it's probably one of the extensions of having a point of care ultrasound where it might be used in ultrasound uh, uh, screening of some of the 
melanoma patients. And it seems to be, at least some of the studies, is a significant number of patients. Uh, it was really detected on ultrasound while the clinical exam was negative and the patients had no symptoms. Okay. So soon to be the local dermatologists, the ultrasound machine. For all the needs that we've talked about in our previous discussions. Right. I, I think what I uh, suggested is probably the point of care ultrasound is the new dermoscopy and the tools that dermatologists will be using. Right. Okay. So my guideline is don't come back. You come and see me for the every six months for the first couple of years, and then annually for a couple of years. And then if nothing's happened, you're discharged from the clinic. That is right. And... If there is anything during those years, that's reset the, the clock. So if it detects, it just resets yeah. the clock. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then and then investigations, virtually nothing other than observation and um, you know biopsying things that are suspicious, of course. But but it's it's all based on visual. There's no you don't do chest X-rays. You do you do a dermatoscope. You don't do an ultrasound like routinely. Um, you feel for lymph nodes. You look at the skin. Yeah, so you're doing your physical exam, which is full skin exam, palpating the lymph nodes and palpating the liver and spleen. That is the routine exam uh, in most cases. We talked about the ultrasound where in the setting of uh, where sentinel lymph node biopsy would have been appropriate. Uh, Imaging, yes, chest x-rays are not recommended, but when it comes to imaging with PET and PET, PET CT and CT scans, those are actually suggested, I would say they're not recommended, but they're suggested in high risk patients. So patients who are based on the guidelines you're looking at either stage 2B or 2C. So patients with more than two millimeters with ulceration or more than four millimeters is to have regular PET scan if you have access to it. And usually the recommendation is about annual for the first, uh, for the annually for first five years. Uh, and if you don't have access to a PET CT, then you can do a CT in, instead. Um, so those that's when imaging becomes uh, suggested. But there's no recommendation for regular lab work, uh, including LDH or some of the other melanoma markers uh, as well. So clinical exam, ultrasound in some patients for the lymph nodes, and in the high-risk patients, uh, uh, considering a PET CT or a CT scan. Okay, so to change tumors, what do you do for the non-melanoma skin cancers? What's your what's your sense of surveillance uh, for them? And now, you know, different people. You know, you have people you have people that you know that, that uh, farmed in Alberta and for fifty years and have actinic keratosis all over the place. You have to see them regularly because they've always got something. But is there are there any guidelines that you use in your practice when you have somebody that's had? not just one basal cell, but multiple actinics or multiple non-melanoma skin cancers? Yeah, so I need to be careful there because really I'd, I'm going now based on experience and, and what I have in memory about, about that is what I find most helpful is individual approach per patient. So what I find is if I see a patient on an annual basis or every six months, and there's something to do. So they have multiple AKs or they have a basal cell or squamous cell that they discover once a year or once every two years. I will continue to see this patient. If I have two or three uh, follow-up visits that there's nothing identified, then I would approach the patient about, I'm happy to report that nothing has been happening in the last few years and 
I'm happy to send you back to your primary care provider. I'll be more than happy to see you in the future if there's any concern. Now, yeah, I think that would be the convention. Yeah, and I think for, for I think most. for most people, yeah. uh, that's that's reasonable. Just we don't have a lot of data to go by in terms of doing it otherwise. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the details of if someone has specific cancers like head and neck squamous cell and what type of lymph node monitoring that you do. Uh, that's that's probably for a, for a different uh, discussion. Yeah. yeah, well, we've tried to look at guidelines for non-melanoma skin cancer, guidelines for actinic keratosis, and and you know you can see from the from the fact that we don't have any that the exercise hasn't been very successful, and nor and nor has it been really desired. I think if we had if we had some desire for writing it down, it would be written down. Um, but it might be that guidelines become a little restrictive and don't allow for that individual patient discussion, because I'm going to tell you, I've, I have mostly older folks in my practice that say, well, you know, let's not do anything. And I say, well, that's great if you're going to die tomorrow. You know, it's maybe not so great if you're going to be another three to five years, it might be a big problem for you just nursing. You might, you know, it might bleed, it might so on. So, so, so I think that individual discussion is important and that's where guidelines be, fail us. Because they can become quite restrictive. I wouldn't fault the guidelines for that. I, I would fault our understanding or our approach to guidelines. Uh, the thing is, if we think guidelines are not the new law or rules that need to be followed, many people don't really even know that certain guidelines for certain diseases exist. Uh, uh, I think people who make the guidelines are the ones who really think guidelines are important. Uh, and if you, if you ask a lot of people, they don't even know that those guidelines exist. But uh, I think the value of the guidelines come into two areas. One, it can be a very quick tool. If I have someone with a disease that I don't see a lot, and I need a quick approach on some of the things I can do. So if I get a, guide, a quick guideline about treating, let's say, lichen planus, uh, where not a lot of evidence exists, right? Rather than me looking for, okay, I've tried two different medications with this patient. I need to do an extensive search to see what is the third or third option I can I can use. A, uh, an easily accessible guideline can help with that. The other area where guidelines can be quite helpful is if there is an existing practice pattern or expectations, and it's very difficult to shake that off. And I would say, Screening post-melanomas is one of those areas uh, where the expectations from uh, many dermatologists, from healthcare, other healthcare providers and patients, just because this has been the practice for the last many years, uh, and there's a huge change in the healthcare system where the current model is probably not sustainable. And just having a second look at it, reviewing all the evidence that is uh, out there. In addition to that, there are actually competing guidelines coming from other groups that might not take into account uh, the dermatology uh, task force, uh, the dermatology workforce in Canada, that those recommendations are not uh, feasible uh, in a Canadian healthcare system. So I think in those situations, it is really important uh, to have a national guidelines by uh, a dermatology national organization such as the uh, CDA. Yeah, well, the CDA does have a guidelines committee, as I remember. Now, I'm not sure it's active, 
And uh, I don't, in judging the number of guidelines that we currently have that are labeled Canadian guidelines in X disease, um, I think it's a daunting task and to create them. And you're quite right. It's, it's probably more important to look at your healthcare um, system and make your guidelines based on what's available and make them practical and useful versus the American guidelines. I don't think they're very useful here. They can give you some therapeutic tips, perhaps, or maybe, oh, I didn't think about that, like you said. But I think sticking to them as guidelines, like a lawyer might do holding you up in court, I think is is fraught with danger because we as Canadians have an entirely different system than the Americans, than the British, than the Germans, than the South Africans have. And living by their guidelines is difficult for us. Uh, I need to be care- very careful there because I'm actually a member of the CDA Clinical Practice Guidelines Committee. So it does exist. Uh, but uh, your your point is well taken. Um, and I totally agree with the concern about using guidelines from different part of the world, number one, or guidelines that are created by uh, other groups. So like a, if guidelines for melanoma are created by medical oncologists, the focus of that is really about their the role of the medical oncologists within the management of melanoma. Now, they might make uh, uh, other recommendations about, oh, after five years of seeing a medical oncologist, the patient should follow-up should be with a dermatologist on an annual basis. That's easy to say, but really does not take into account that the things that we, we've been talking about, about the shortages of dermatologists in, in Canada. Um, and and yes, if you're taking something or different geographic area, especially the, the American healthcare system, which is completely different from the Canadian healthcare system, you cannot do, like, in, we don't do PET CT scans for every patient with any low risk cancer uh, every six months. That's not how we do things. And uh, so we need to be careful in terms, yeah, what is the, the scientific aspect of it? And then the aspect that is based on, uh, uh, that takes into account uh, the structure of the healthcare system itself. Okay, is there anything else? I think we've driven the car home. Yeah, perfect. Thanks, Kirk, for inviting me again. It's always a pleasure being here. Okay, cheers. That's it for this episode of JCMS Author Interviews Podcast. I hope you enjoyed uh, your time with us and you've learned uh, something new that you can apply uh, to your daily practice. If you did, please rate and review us where you listen because it helps more people find these interviews. Also, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're looking for more great CDA podcasts, be sure to check out Dermalogs, our resident podcast that's uh, hosted by my colleague, Dr. Kerry Purdy. So once again, thanks so much for listening. I enjoy doing these for you and I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. I'm Kirk Barber. Until next time, be good to each other.